0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: And again, I just care about kids because they—they're fun to take care of. But there is a, a bigger market size actually for the older people that you take care of that have, you know, uh, gunshot wounds or cancer surgeries or what have you. So that we need as a society, we need to push hard to have better off-the-shelf strategies rather than doing a free flap, which is taking a pish, you know piece of your leg and putting it in your mouth. That doesn't sound. I mean, if you need it, you need it, but it doesn't sound great if you could avoid it or get something off the shelf. So, so it's really that curiosity and, and harnessing in on those pain points that you and I see in in surgery and saying, why are we doing? This? I mean, there has to be some, you know, if I can have an iPhone that's the size of my palm that solves every problem I never knew I had, right? Why don't we have that same sophistication and, and have different therapies, you know, because we haven't changed, we haven't moved the needle on any of that in a long time
0: hello everyone and welcome this is the back table emt podcast here we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in the field of otolaryngology with a hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice thank you to our listeners who have been listening to the show for tuning in and for any of you new listeners welcome my name is Gopi Shaw, and
2: I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist here in Dallas at Children's Health. My name is Ashley Agan, and I am a general ENT. I also practice in an academic setting here at UT Southwestern in Dallas. We've got a great show today. How are you feeling, Gopi? I'm feeling very good. Very good. It's Sunday,
0: and I have a we have an awesome topic and a super, super, super smart guest who
2: I'm super excited to talk to. Today. For, so sure, for sure. For sure. Any, any day that I get to do a podcast with you, Copi. Good <laughs> day. Um, we have Dr. Stephen Gowdy. Uh he is a professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where he is the director for pediatric otolaryngology. Dr. Gowdy obtained his medical degree from the University of Louisville School of Medicine. He stayed there to complete his residency in otolaryngology and then went to University of Iowa to complete his fellowship training in pediatric otolaryngology. Cleft and craniofacial disorders are his primary clinical and basic research interests. He does translational research, working with a team including orthopedics, internal medicine, and biomedical engineering at Emory, and genomics at Georgia Institute of Technology. His research team looks at bone and soft tissue biology to develop regenerative therapies for children. The ultimate goal of his research team is to provide off the shelf solutions to reduce morbidity in children undergoing craniofacial surgery. He also obtained a master's in business administration from Emory and is the CEO and founder of a startup company, Dr. Knows Best, which develops novel solutions to alleviate upper respiratory tract infection symptoms in children. He is here today to talk to us about cleft care. Welcome to the show, Steve. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Very excited to be here. It's an honor.
0: For our listeners, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So as you stated, I'm a pediatric laryngologist or, you know, I pick uh, boogers and earwax out of babies for a living. So (laughs) I love that. You know, I do love cleft and craniofacial care. I guess I'm a nerd and I love science and, you know, the embryology of Facial growth and development is fascinating to me and taking care of those patients is quite special. Number one is a transformative experience for the families to have the surgeries performed, but moreover, I'm able to follow them until they're 18 or 19 years old. And so I really get to know them. So, you know, but there's a lot of general pediatric ENT that I do and I love it. I mean, it's fun. Kids want to get better. They don't complain uh, as much. So yeah, it's great.
2: So the you know topic of cleft lip and palate is is a big pretty big topic. Can you first just kind of explain you know what that is and what it means? Just kind of set the stage right. for what we're going to talk about today.
1: So cleft the, me, the the meaning of the word cleft is separation. So a cleft of the lip is a separation of the lip. So when your body is forming, your face is growing from the sides to the middle, and the middle part's growing down. And if they don't grow fast enough to touch or they grow fast enough to touch, but then they don't join, then you get a separation. And so we all start out with a cleft lip. We all start out with a cleft palate. And so for whatever reason, genetic or environmental or some combination there in about a one in a thousand live births in the U S have a cleft or a separation of the lip or the palate. And along with that goes, can, can be other differences, which would make it a syndrome or a constellation of findings, or it may be cleft lip alone or cleft lip and palate alone or cleft palate alone. So each one of those sets the child on a different surgical trajectory, as well as care and care team trajectory, and certainly it's a team sport, so there's you know, at the very beginning, it's not about any surgery, it's about feeding and breathing and so on. And so there's special bottles that families need to use, working closely with a speech and language pathologist. And then there are teams of folks. And so there's the American Cleft Palate Association, which is an organization that's dedicated to the care of patients that have these differences. And, you know, seeing a team of folks is what's best because then, you know, the team comes to you versus you going to this appointment on Tuesday, this appointment on Wednesday, and each doctor or care provider is pointing at the other one who's responsible for, you know, doing something. So it really is a kind of patient centered approach to care.
0: So when do you first see these patients? Um, Do you feel like now in the last uh, with prenatal ultrasound, you see these patients, you know, or families, not patients, if you will, but families, you know, before the baby's born, how often does that happen? or do you then you know usually within in the NICU do they call you and then you go see the baby? At what point in time do you start seeing these babies?
1: It's a great question. I think as you mentioned, we are identifying these differences earlier and earlier. certainly if there is a cleft lip that is easier to detect than a cleft palate alone. If you've seen an ultrasound, you know the babies are in a quiet dark environment. And then when you put the ultrasound on them and they start wriggling around and moving, and it's hard to really identify some of these differences. The face grows and develops very early in life. So around, you know, the 10th week, their face is, is almost fully formed. So if you're getting your 20 week ultrasound, then you will be able to identify some of these differences. And, And then therefore we can have conversations with the families. And just to help them understand that, you know. That this is not a, a consequence of them having a Diet Coke on Tuesday or eating Taco Bell on Wednesday, or there, there's not any attribution or blame and to help them identify what their child's care path is going to be. And, and to demystify it, you know, certainly we do also get consulted in the NICU for folks that may have not had good access to prenatal care or that it wasn't identified. Prenatally, at, and at that point, we sit down and have a conversation about what the future looks like for you know Susie or Johnny or or what have you.
2: And so, when when patients per- first present to you, you mentioned that you know the the first thing you're worried about is just kind of basic, you know, can they can they feed? Are they breathing okay? Like kind of just getting all of that intact. So then, what happens after that as far as you know timing of of repair and different things? And how does the type of cleft or if it's cleft lip and palate, you know, how do the different combinations affect the timing?
1: Right. And so one of the things I would say for your listeners is that babies are obligate nose breathers. And so, you know, if they do have a cleft in their lip and it's fairly wide, then that gives them actually more space to breathe through. If there is a cleft or separation in the roof of their mouth or a cleft palate, then they can't suck very well. So really, you know, that suck, swallow, breathe rhythm is interrupted and there's a lot of time spent just getting them to eat because before we can really consider operation, they need to be healthy and growing and nutritionally taken care of. So, So really feeding their specialty bottles, there's something called a Haberman bottle, a pigeon bottle. There's a Dr. Brown specialty bottle. You know, I don't have any disclosures with respect to bottles. So I'm bottle agnostic, there's a lot of different ones. I always say the Dr. Brown specialty bottle is found in target. So a, a lot of families use that one. And so assuming that we are on a good trajectory to eat, eat and feed, to, to grow, and that they're gaining weight, that the adage for a cleft lip repair, which is typically the first thing that you do is 10 weeks, 10 pounds, and 10 grams of hemoglobin. And again, that's an old adage. I don't think that there's necessarily that scientifically based per se. And that would be, in my mind, the earliest that you would do it. I think there's some folks that are pushing that envelope and trying to do it earlier and earlier just because they feel that there's still some of the maternal progesterone and other things in the system that allow the body to heal in a less scarring manner. There's also some orthodontic stuff or procedures that, can be used called nasal alveolar molding, where it actually brings the width or the separation closer together to make the surgery easier. And that requires weekly appointments where they're building a retainer for your baby that's stretching out the nose because the nose is shaped differently moving the two segments or the two, what we call alveolar ridges or bony lines closer together. So you go from trying to fix and close a pretty wide cleft to fixing are closing a very narrow cleft, which obviously is easier to do technically. And so in general, we're going to fix the lip if it's on one side, meaning unilateral, around three to four months of age, if it's on both sides, meaning bilateral, I wait till they're five, maybe six months of age, just because when you go from having tons of space to breathe through, right. So we said babies are obligate nasal breathers. And then all of a sudden you kind of squatch it all up and then so it together, they can have a hard time breathing after that bilateral cleft lip repair, and you know we don't want them stranded in the hospital for a long time, figuring out how to breathe and letting the swelling go down. And then for the cleft palate repair, in general, about a year of age, plus or minus, depending on their growth and development. Do they have underlying heart problems, et cetera, that take precedent over fixing their palate?
0: And since we're on the topic of um, cleft lip, can you go into the difference between complete and incomplete, how, you know, surgery or expectations might be, if they're different, Mm -hmm. you know, those types of nuances?
1: Right. So, and that's a great question. Incomplete, as you might imagine, means that the separation doesn't go from the top to the bottom of the nostril through the lip. So there is some attachment that is remaining. That attachment has been referred to eponymously as Simon Arts Band. So if anybody has to take their boards and their board and want to get a test question right, that's one test question that shows up. And then you can have lots of different variants of that. It can be very subtle, called a microform, meaning very small cleft. And so that may just be a tiny notch or indentation in the lip, or it could be super wide, or it can be anywhere in between. And you can have a bilateral cleft lip meaning both sides where one is complete and the other one's incomplete. I would say the other interesting part is that the bilateral cleft lip that's complete, this central part called the premaxilla can stick way out. And so that makes it really hard to fix it. And again, that's the embryologic front of the nasal process and it has these central and lateral incisors. And so you, you sometimes have to kind of push that back and pull it together, or you can do some stepwise lip, what's called a lip adhesion, where you sew the tissue together to kind of bring it back and then come back and do a revision surgery down the road. The goal in most of these surgeries is to recreate the muscular ring around your mouth. That's the muscle, the orbicularis oris. There are some types of repairs, particularly the bilateral ones that don't incorporate the muscle all the way around. I personally think it's important to reconstitute that just because you could puck your lips, you could whistle. And if you don't get that muscle together all the way, then you can have what's called a whistler deformity when you kind of whistle, then there's a little notch in your lip and it looks different. So I would also say at the time of cleft lip repair in general, you know, we're otolaryngologists here. We love doing ear tubes. So we'll put ear tubes in in these babies. And on average, they're going to need about three sets of ear tubes in their lifetime, just because, again, if they have a cleft palate, because the Tensor Veli Palatini is not attached to the other side. And so there's a very high incidence of conductive and sensory neural hearing loss in these patients. So their hearing needs to be screened very closely.
2: And then on the topic of, you know, that eustachian tube dysfunction, do you typically see that improve after surgery and after they grow? Or do some of these patients have lifelong issues with eustachian tube dysfunction?
1: The answer is yes. Actually, I wrote a paper on that, you know, 15 years ago. And the average number of ear tubes that patients get will be about three sets of ear tubes. So about 50% of patients will resolve their eustachian tube dysfunction or kind of the fluid behind their ears at a, after their palate repair, but 50% will. So they need to be followed long-term by a nolaryngologist who understands what tympanic mem- membrane retractions, cholesteatoma, screening for sensory neural hearing loss. A lot of these children will have syndromes. And so they have heart disease, they have cleft lip, they have cleft palate, they have breathing issues, they have trachs. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, you're a year or two down the road, you're like, oh my gosh, this child has sensory neural hearing loss, needs hearing aids, has compounding speech delay and so on. And so we as otolaryngologists need to be the advocate for these children getting proper hearing tests and getting to the bottom of that just because you, you know, you need to identify it by one month, confirm it by three months, and treat it by six months as a as an EOT. That is the mandate from our society. And so, if if we are not keep, you know if we're not involved in the care of these patients, then I think that 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 is a potential uh, delay in care and could affect lots and lots of stuff.
0: So Steve, that's a great point that you bring up. I feel like for. Our babies that are born premature or have an extended NICU stay, um, I feel like you know we do a pretty good job, obviously, with the newborn hearing screen, and then having them come back between that six to ten month period for behavioral, um, for the risk of you know delayed onset hearing loss. For the otherwise you know isolated cleft palate baby, who is a term baby, pass the newborn hearing screen. Do you have like, hey, we're going to check your hearing behavioral regardless at like, you know, before a year, you know, eighteen months, because uh, you know, on one hand, we're always thinking, well, the how the speech develops will be a reflection of how they're hearing. But I would imagine with the cleft palate kids, because the speech is and articulations affected, that can be hard. So how do you how how do you know, or how aggressive do you know to be sometimes with the hearing tests?
1: It's a great point, and I think that they should be screened every six months until you're pretty confident that they're hearing fine. And, and generally that's probably going to be two or three years down the road. Just as you said, there's lots and lots of risk factors that these children end up having. And, you know, there, there's lots of reasons why they may not be speaking. If we don't advocate strongly and work with the audiologist, I think that's, again, the partnership of working with the audiologist or the folks that test the hearing, working with the speech pathologist, And saying, have we ruled this out? And it may require a general anesthetic to do a sedated hearing test to confirm that there's no hearing loss. Right. we, we, I would much rather spend a little time doing that than not have these conversations a year or two down the road, like, oh, your kid has a moderate hearing loss and now we're putting hearing aids on and now there's speech delay and you're already in all these thousands of other therapies and what have you. Right.
2: Yeah. Just kind of thinking about, you know, that when they're first presenting, you know, you mentioned the um, incidence of, you know, also having other comorbid issues or, or having different syndromes. So are you referring all of these patients for genetic testing?
1: I personally am. I think that I just, I love information. I think information is power. And there are some families that don't necessarily want that for themselves. And I think that that's cons- concerns about social stigmata, concerns about what have you. I think I don't want to miss things. I'm not a geneticist. Lots and lots of these kids have genetic differences. You know, if particularly if they have more than one physical finding, then there is, there's a need for genetics. So you don't miss a kid, you know, kidney disease, you don't miss cardiac disease. you You know, I think somebody just needs to see them, particularly if there's any type of family history, et cetera. And, it, and for the families, it's it helps them understand what their risk of having another child that has this same difference is. So absolutely.
0: And so talking about the cleft team, can you go over exactly who, like if the patient comes to your cleft clinic, who's, who's part of the, who are the members there? Who are the clinical providers that they see there?
1: And I think it's different across the country. Certainly you want to have a surgeon and a surgeon can be any number of folks with different backgrounds, olaryngology, plastic surgery, oral surgery, you want to have a audiologist, a speech pathologist, geneticist, somebody that understands social work. You may need a psychologist, particularly for the children that have eight screws on some of these rare, you know, multifactorial conditions, just because there's a lot of hurdles that these families uh, have to go through. And certainly as a team, You know, you need obviously dentistry or oral surgery, uh, orthodontics, all those folks. But again, if it may look different in different centers, but ideally, and obviously, olaryngologists, if the olaryngologist is not the surgeon doing the cleft surgery, just, there's lots of things that these, these patients need and team care has reliable and reproducibly good results. So I think that's what families should strive for. Yeah. Obviously the pandemic pandemic has really impacted people's access to care. And actually folks are doing cleft clinics remotely or virtually and other things. And there's some there's some silver linings to get into the homes of families that, that have low resources and barriers to care.
2: Yeah. The more the merrier, for sure. I, I always feel better working with people who experts in their area. Can you expand a little bit about, you mentioned social work. What types of, I think that might be one that I forget about, you know, making sure patients are connected with social work. What types of services or how do they help patients navigate through all of this?
1: Right. So if folks live two, three, four, five hours away, you guys are in Texas. Texas is a very big state. And I'm sure that there's literally lots of medical deserts out there where You know, you're making, you know, some of these families are making the decisions. Do I drive four to six hours for a single appointment or for a day of worth of appointments or do I feed my family? Do you know who in my environment can help me with formula to feed my baby, to grow him or her big enough to have the surgeries and so on. So they're. Yeah. I mean, there are families that just don't have those resources and the social workers can help plug them into the local folks that have access to that. Here in Georgia, we have a program called Babies Can't Wait, and that helps the hearing and speech, you know, folks that are at risk for hearing loss or do have hearing loss in the first couple of years of life. So as physicians, as surgeons, from a kind of lean process standpoint, we don't need to be doing social work. That's not us working at the top of the scope. That's us being compassionate individuals, but no, I wasn't trained as a social okay. worker and certainly I can't execute on that. And so these families need to be supported in that way and the, and the physicians too, because it's not a good feeling for us to watch, you know, this car accident unfolding on the highway. You're like, I know that this pa- patient has XYZ barriers to care and therefore that's going to their care is going to turn out differently than the patient is sitting in the next room and that does, that doesn't feel good.
0: I feel like I've had lots of different situations where I'm so thankful I have a social worker to help me, you know, get make my patient's care complete and guide me through these difficult humps and barriers because like you said Steve, we're not trained to do it. We don't understand the mechanisms that are in place or how to utilize the resources that are there. And so I think families really appreciate when they have those other, you know, social work available to them or other resources. Can you tell us a little bit about like when you do pre-op counseling for the initial uh, cleft lip or palate? Again, I know the pre-op counseling for lip and palate, you know, especially when they're isolated is pretty different and probably depends on the type. But how do you counsel families? What kind of expectations should they have? How long do they usually stay in the hospital? What kind of post-op complications do they, you know, should, should they be aware of?
1: Right. So for the cleft lip repair, generally that takes about an hour, hour and a half to do. Obviously, you you know, it depends on the width as far as how long and and kind of what the scar will look like if it's a, a wide cleft or separation and you're moving tissue around quite a bit, there'll be more tension and tension causes more scar. You know, there is no scarless cleft lip surgery. The goal of the cleft lip surgery is to hide the scars and the lines that your other folks are kind of naturally looking for. So the philtrum are kind of the two lines under your lips. If you are recreating a scar that is in the same path or trajectory of that normally occurring line on other folks face, that's the goal. Right. And so really the goal of the cleft lip surgery is to recreate a scar in the similar line as the philtrum or the line on your lip and reshape the nose so that it's not flattened. Typically it's flattened. So recovery is a couple of weeks. The kids are angry just because I put no nose on their arms, which keeps their arms straight. And they're kind of, so they're not scratching at their face. Certainly that they can take those off when the family is with their child. And same thing with the cleft palate, they have to wear the no nose. As far as risk related to cleft palate, there's a 10% risk. There'll be a hole or fistula that, uh, again, the cleft is a, is a separation, meaning that if you have a cleft palate, there's a continuous space between your oral cavity and your nasal cavity. That's why you can't create suction. And so you're going to close that off moving tissues or, or mucosa from the sides to the middle and sewing it up in a very dirty place that undergoes constant physical trauma. And so certainly addressing some of the tension can reduce the incidence of fistula formation, but it still happens. And then they have food coming out of their nose and their speech is money. You know, and so there's air that continues to come out of their nose. And so the, if a fistula does occur, the, the revision surgery is necessary and the efficacy or the success rate of those is only about 50 or 60%. So, and it kind of, that dovetails into my research is that we're actually trying to develop strategies to reduce fistula formation and make it easier to heal.
2: I think that's a great segue into talking about research because, you know, we wanted to kind of ask you about your translational research and, you know, how, how you stepped into that and how it's part of your career and, you know, more about what that entails.
1: I like doing frustrating things that involve a lot of rejection apparently (laughs) um so basic uh, and translational research is very interesting i mean we're all here talking on a sunday morning because we want to make things better and we want to change things and the translational research allows my scientific brain to bring the embryology the developmental biology aspects to the surgical technical surgeries that we perform and try to meet somewhere in the middle and say okay why am i getting fistulas how do i control that better you know and if you think about wounding and wound healing folks are pushing all in on stem cells this and growth factor that for cutaneous wounds or burn wounds or what have you there are not many people interested in oral cavity wound healing. And so uh, as I've done in my whole life, I surround myself with people that are smarter than me that help answer these questions. And so... That's why I talk with
0: Ashley every Sunday.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. It makes you feel smarter. You know, and I work in with a bunch of engineers at Georgia Tech and they have lots of cool toys and growth factors and delivery vehicles, but they don't really know what the clinical application is. And so... You know, that's where I wanted to be a basic scientist and like look at DNA and mouse models of genetics, X, Y, Z. And I didn't do very well at that because I wasn't doing it all the time. So really, you know, what am I doing all the time? I'm doing surgery. I'm thinking about it. So how did I, you know, I was like, okay, well, I got to pivot, right? That's the 2021 or 2020, you know, where to pivot from (laughs) this and, you know, restructure that. But, you know, I pivoted. I was like, okay, well, I'm not making success here. I love science. It's relaxing to me. And it's every time I get new data, it's like I'm unwrapping a Christmas present. And so, you know, in leveraging the folks around me, we've identified something that can enhance wound healing in the oral cavity um, using an already FDA approved drug and reduce fistula formation in a mouse model. So, you know, I think, I think it's just saying, okay, what are the pain points that families have, right? So it's bone biology. We're trying to make more bone because really if, so we haven't talked about filling the gap in the alveolus or the uh, gum line, you have to do a hip graft from that. And if you've done one of those, or you've seen one of those done, I mean, the kids are like limping around for a week. I have to stay in the hospital overnight. They may end up getting a hip fracture just to get some bone, right? And that doesn't sound very cool. So there needs to be a better regenerative strategy for that. So I have, that's part of my lab. And then the other part is making oral mucosal wound healing you know, and, and, and again, I just care about kids cause they, they're fun to take care of, but there is a, a bigger market size, actually for the older people that you take care of that have, you know, uh, gunshot wounds or cancer surgeries or what have you. So that we need, as a society, we need to push hard to have better off the shelf strategies rather than doing a free flap, which is taking a piece, you know, piece of your leg and putting it in your mouth. That doesn't sound I mean, if you need it, you need it. But it doesn't sound great if you could avoid it or get something off the shelf. So, so it's really that curiosity and, and harnessing in on those pain points that you and I see in in surgery and saying, why are we doing? This? I mean, there has to be some. You know, if I can have an iPhone that's the size of my palm that solves every problem I never knew I had, right? Why don't we have that same sophistication and have different therapies? That You know, because we haven't changed, we haven't moved the needle on any of that in a long time.
0: Right. Absolutely. For somebody that's starting out, like, you know, they're finishing their residency year and they're within their first, you know, two to five years of their career. What are the steps or how do you actually get into translational research? How do you get your, you know, internets and orthodontics and biomedical engineering? Like, how do you even go about making that research team develop?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple components. Number one, you have to have a little bit of training or exposure directly, formally or informally, just so you understand kind of what is, what is it you're doing? Why are you doing it? You have to have mentorship. I, I mean, mentorship is so important. and And some of my successes and failures have been tied to having good mentorship or not having good mentorship. So if you don't have good mentorship and you don't have somebody that's gonna fight for you and that is going to knock down the walls that you're approaching, then you're not gonna make it. So, you you know, and that's fine. I mean, there's lots of good things to go. I mean, you guys have a podcast, right? You guys are crushing it there. So there's lots of ways that you can find your path, but if you really want to go into a field where you're gonna spend months and months and months writing a grant that only has, a five to 10% chance of getting funded, you have to love rejection and have good mentorship and have somebody patting you on the back, pushing you up the hill over and over and over. It's almost like Don Quixote, you know, attacking windmills. Um, <laughs> having said that, you know, I mean, I wrote 18 R01 grants to get one. Wow. So, yeah, so it's, but, it, but I like it. It's curious. And so you know, not to be super wonky, but if you do a Berkman, which is a personality assessment, I finally realized that that's actually science and like medical or just scientific curiosity actually is relaxing to me. And so that's why I think I gravitated to it. But if if you do a self-assessment, whatever that is, and you find out that what you're set on doing actually stresses you out, you need to, you need to think about that, right?
2: That's great advice. I love that. And I love that you mentioned mentorship, because I think that's something, you know, Gopi and I talk about that a lot. And it's, it's so true that like, when you start to talk to people who have been really successful, that, that recurring theme always comes up. Like, well, I had, I had, I surrounded myself with good people, with people who are smarter than I am with, you know, like I, I kind of, you know, climbed on the shoulders of, of other people to kind of push forward. So how do you, you know, what's your advice for people who are like? Trying to find a mentor? Do you, do you, are you just, you know, are you just really good at networking or did you just happen to know, you know, these people already? Or how does that, how did those relationships happen?
1: And that's a great question. And the answer, you know, is multifactorial, right? You see, again, it's all about knowing yourself. So if you're an introvert, right, you have to say, okay, I'm an introvert. This is super uncomfortable, but I'm not going to succeed if I'm not surrounded by good people in general, you know, I mean, uh so so you have to surround yourself with good people you know if you're just starting out before you take whatever your first job is if you know that you know you want to be the first otolaryngologist to ride on this you know the in the nasa space next spacecraft you need to find somebody that actually knows (laughs) you know that knows somebody because otherwise if you like go to the department and then you tell them they're gonna be like look dude, I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds kind of crazy. And here's a whole bunch of patients for you to go see, right? So that has to be very, from the outset, you have to be very introspective, say, what, who am I? Can I do this? What are the things I need? Ultimately, from whatever residency program, fellowship program, faculty, wherever you are, you should have that conversation with your mentors there who know you and assuming that you've been nice to them, that they want to see you succeed, right? So- you know, again, if you've been somebody that's climbing on the shoulders of other people, but also stepping on their head on the way up, that's not the way to do it. But if there are people that are putting you on their shoulders, they're going to help you. They want, they want you to succeed because that's their legacy. And, and just, you know, again, the rejection part is real and not everybody's going to want to help you. You know, I mean, for me, I just reached out to somebody on LinkedIn the other day. They're not going to respond and that's fine. You know, I don't. So I think it's understanding and having that toughness, but again, it comes back to mentorship and saying, okay, well, I'm going to take this job at X, Y, Z place. And this is what I really want to do. I'm very passionate about it. And them understanding and asking them like, who are my mentors going to be? How are you going to support me? How does this going to work? What's the balance of time, et cetera. And having all that understood on the front end, because otherwise if you get there and you know, they're planning for A and you're planning for B. Right. You know, somebody's going to see their way out. So,
2: right. Well, I'm sure Does they answer uh, your question. Oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I love that. That's great.
0: Thank you. So, I was going to ask you, as you know, the chief of pediatric ENT at Emory. What kind of, how do you mentor your faculty? Like, what do you, what do you, how do you do it? Or is it just different for every uh, faculty member? Is it all m- usually on the mentee side? It's still a dance that's hard to know how to do well, if you will.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've like made, I have made lots of changes to my approach. And I I would say that business school was super helpful in that because businesses actually understand that that's building the pipeline, right? I mean, in medicine, we're not ever taught about building the pipeline. It's like, you know, are we allowed to curse on this? Yeah. Okay. It was like, look, God damn it. This is your job. You know, I mean, I right. mean, there was literally like what I started in my residency before the dawn of time, there was one attending that we worked with that, you know, really you could measure your success and failure by the attaboy to God damn it ratio. Right? <laughs> and so, you know, if you got more God than it's attaboys then that was a bad day and you just had to figure out how to do it differently. But you know, the. Business school really is about business, building a pipeline. And so at the beginning, so when I was, I've been the division director for six years, I mean, I was trying to manage people and have them execute on the things I thought would make them happy. And that doesn't make people happy because that ultimately it ends up being micromanaging and whatever. And people hate that a lot. I can tell you from personal experience. So I have, again, pivoted away or had some self-reflection and One of the big terms that comes up over and over in business and leadership is psychological safety. So you need to create that psychological safety for the folks in your environment to give you feedback when you are being pushy or being micromanaging so that you can say, okay, well, that's not working. And because I hate being micromanaged so much, I sometimes will just let people do their own thing. You know, my, what I say to them is like, look, what I, what I brought you here to do is to take very good care of patients. And if you're doing that. That's all I need you to do. You know, if you want to get promoted, that's very different. You know, here's what that looks like. Here are the things that you could do. You know, it's, I guess it's in some ways it's choose your own adventure kind of story and helping frame things. And I, even onboarding has turned uh, and become a lot different, you know, not, not that. I don't want, I don't want to be micromanaging, but there's so many things that people don't talk to you about. Like what it's super stressful to start your first job and you have your first complication and, you know, and again, the the right word is not second victim, uh, because that's, I think people don't like that. But if you have, if you have some real life stuff that goes on and you're operating on people and ultimately that's going to happen, you know, that's very injurious to you. And if I haven't prepared you for that, right. Then that's hard. It's hard for you. It's hard for me. It hurts everybody. So there's a lot of things I've done differently, but you know, I think I, I try, <laughs> I I like giving people things to do. I want to, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by a lot of things as you can tell. And certainly like to delegate and, and grow people's careers. But then there are people that say, Hey, look, dude, I'm full. I'm good. No moss, you know? Right. And, and again, if you create that psychological safety where like, okay. You know, you're not looking at me saying, am I getting an attaboy or God damn it? But like, Hey, this is a conversation, you know, I, our division has six female surgeons and two male surgeons. And, and again, the, the lives that, that my six female surgeon partners walk it, it is very different, you know, and, and so I try to hook them up with other mentors that have, that have walked that same space just cause there's different things going on. So. I don't know if that was too rambling, but that's kind of it's been an evolution. Is the short way to to answer that question?
2: Yeah, I think that's great. I think when I think about like really highly functioning, successful organizations and groups, I feel like it's kind of like an orchestra where everyone is like living their best life and like really, you know, living out what they're passionate about, which is different for everyone. So you know, you have some people over here who just you know read, you know. The white journal <laughs> all this you know in their free time right you know. And then you have other people that are you know wanting to do other things that i think it's i i love that approach of like you know make your own adventure let me give you some general guidance on kind of you know what what it looks you know what promotion looks like or different things like that but right. it can look different for everybody we're not trying to make you know all these clones of like yeah, this, right. this is what yeah, we don't
1: need everybody like. in the department to be the chairman or chairwoman. Exactly. You know, you know.
2: Exactly, exactly. I have to say
0: it's gotta be hard. Maybe my my thought is maybe this is just me, but you know, as we are in medicine, you know, there are certain things or boxes that you have to check to get into medical school. There's certain things that you have to do to get into residency to a fellowship and so the choose your own adventure mindset i think can sometimes be a little late for some of us in medicine and i feel like it's important to start having that mindset earlier on and really encouraging our residents um, and our medical students because it's so easy with the way we get into things right it's a match you don't you're not choosing as much you know your that power isn't there and yet there's so much in terms of self awareness and self empowerment just from Getting comfortable in your skin and being okay to pivot and understanding what you like and don't like, and being knowing when you can say no so you can say yes to other things. And um it's it's definitely uh, a process that continues to um, evolve. And it's something that I do think it's important for us to continue to encourage in our trainees and our colleagues
1: absolutely. And I, and I will say one other thing. I mean when I hire folks, I'm hiring them for a pretty specific thing. So I have that conversation on the front end so that their expectations are like, hey, You know, we already have two people that do X, Y, Z surgery. We don't need a third person. So if you're coming here for that reason, that's not what we need, you know? And so some of those basic fundamental expectations are being met. And then from there, it's what growth do they want and how do they balance their lives? And I would say that leveraging the university or the practice or wherever you're in to get the most out of that, you know, as surgeons, you know, a lot of us put our heads down and just grind. You know, at least that's the way it used to be. I don't know that that's happening as much anymore, which I think probably is okay. But, you know, picking your head up and saying, okay, what are people trying to help me do? You know, and uh, it, for example, Emory has a lot of dedicated time for, you know, the younger folks to have you know, career development, to have how do you be a teacher, right? So you walk out of residency or fellowship, nobody's ever sat down and said, okay, here's how to be a good teacher. Here is, you know, I mean, like patient feedback, you know, getting a nasty gram because somebody hates you because you saw them and you made them angry or you told them something they didn't want to hear. It wasn't a good day. You know, you're used to getting hundreds in all your tests and then somebody gives you an F. Yeah, It's hard, you know, not, not to, you know, despite the fact that there's a hundred people that walked out of the office that, that day that loved you. If that one person, you know, that doesn't like you, which happens, it's hard.
2: It's true. Those words hurt. They hurt deep. Yeah. yeah.
1: I never want to see Dr. Gowdy again. You know, like, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. Wish,
2: yeah. yeah. Can't let you leave us today without talking about Dr. Knows Best, uh, your, your startup and your device company. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, get, you know, how you started that and what that is and what it does?
1: Yeah. So, and it kind of dovetails into what we were discussing earlier. So baby are obligate nose, babies are obligate nose breathers. So when they get a bad cold and I have three kids, you know, they can't breathe. They can't eat. They cry all night. You don't sleep. It's a super tense, uncomfortable moment. Usually Saturday night around midnight is when it starts, you know, when my kids have been in daycare. And, you know, even as an and I'm like looking at, okay, you've got the blue bulb that doesn't work you know, it occupies your whole hand. So you're trying to get in there and they're clawing at you and they're like, okay, that doesn't work. The mouth suction device where you put one end in your mouth and you put one end in their nose, that I'd never used that, but that's not hygienic. And there's, you know, again, you're still having to fight and chase your kid around because you physically can't hold their face, hold their arms, hold their legs. And so my wife had told me, said, so, Hey, you need to come up with something better because this is just not this is not good. And so over time again, the curiosity and finding those pain points and listening to your families. I mean, I I have a distinct memory of going into a family's room probably five years ago and they're hospitalized. You know, as a baby has Down syndrome, we all know that those babies have smaller noses, they get a cold, they can't breathe. And mom's like, look, I'm just stuck here because I just need this wall suction. And she had bought a very expensive nasal suction device. It's basically a small vacuum cleaner. It just has a vacuum cleaner fan in it. And she didn't have a lot of disposable income just because she felt paralyzed by her current situation. So, you know, we created a nasal suction device that fits on your index and your middle finger so that you can use your thumb and your pinky finger to hold the baby's head. And then with your other arm, you can actually hold the arms and, and really get it done and be very efficient and using a pump that provides hospital grade suction. So you know, it's rechargeable, portable, you know, if I'm willing to pay a thousand dollars for this little, you know, electronic thing, you know, I sure as heck want something that's going to be efficient unless my baby breathe and eat and then I can sleep. I mean, you know, you think about what a good night's sleep is worth. It's it's worth <laughs> a lot. So, you know, and, and so Dr. Knows Best is going to be a company that focuses on these pain points. What, yeah, I read an article a couple of weeks ago that really called it silent suffering, right? It's like, okay, why are you suffering in silence? Why are we using these things that are not sophisticated, right. To take care of the the thing that we were willing to die for, right. I mean, we're willing to pay anything, do anything and we're, you know, we're, we're kind of bringing a knife to a gunfight, if you will. And so, you know, we, as a company are going to focus on health and wellness products for babies and and young, you know, young toddlers and so on. So that the, these silent suffering moments of, you know, I mean, I, and I assume that you guys both have kids, but. There's a lot of things that you do that you didn't nobody told you it was going to be part of being a parent. you know, I mean, I'm not going to address blowouts and all this other stuff. But there's other <laughs> things that we're using that you know you're half sleep crazed and sleep deprived that that you don't really even realize that the things you're using just seem stupid or not helpful or you wasted the money or you know, yeah. so we're going to make products that address those those pain points that people, you know, we're and and again, really the goal is to educate them, right? I mean, if you Google cold, You're going to get a bunch of information, but who should be telling you about management of colds? It should be us, you know, otolaryngologists we, we are, we're, you know, kind of stay in the nose, right? Our, our uh, hashtag is not a problem. So so addressing that, (laughs) addressing those kinds of things, I think number one is fun and we can make a business out of it, but really educating families on what evidence-based practice looks like and how, you know, and identifying additional pain points that we can make better is the goal of our company.
0: So is it available, Steve, like are families able to purchase or where can they find it or what, what's the timeline for that?
1: Yeah, so we launched about six weeks ago. So we are available to direct to consumer on our website, com. D-R-N-O-Z-E-B-E-S-T, Dr. Knows. There's kind of a play on the word knows. And we're also on Amazon. And so you can find it in both places. And And we're working on product number two that will come out in late 2021 or early 2022. So so really, you know, we've had great feedback, uh, you know, the effects that are not enjoying the other kind of cave person solutions to nasal uh, <laughs> cleaning. They're like, look, this is great. It's efficient. It gets the job done. You know, I mean, I, literally there are people that have told me that they, to suck out their baby's nose, they physically sit on their child, <laughs> pin their arms down with their knees and the head between their knees to do it. You know, and it. that's crazy. Yeah, exactly. It's not. I mean, it. nobody. No. I mean, you know, I'm a pediatric
0: ENT, no. and I've I've done it many times. Right,
1: right. <laughs> so we we want to restore that mom, you know, or dad and baby relationship because that's <laughs> that's next level. You know, nasal suctioning. So.
2: Yeah, I love that. I mean, we're we're developing commercial space flight, so I think. We should be able to get better. We should be able to take care of us. snotty knows with a better system,
1: (laughs) right? Well, I I think I would also point out that if if part of the system you're using where you're inhaling viral particles into your distal alveoli, you know that does not make a lot of sense to me. I mean, certainly you may get a cold, but that's like having somebody sneeze in your mouth or down your throat, and it just doesn't. You know, there's no, there's not an N95 any of those devices, you know.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, congratulations, Steve. That's so exciting. I'm super excited to check it out for myself as well. Any other final pearls or thoughts that you want to leave on whether it's a cleft care, research, leadership, a startup life for our listeners?
1: You know, I think be curious and find good mentorship. I mean, that's the most important thing. You know, all the other stuff, I think you just choose your own journey, but really make sure you have the mentorship you know and somebody that supports your curiosity and and just be honest with yourself i mean if you haven't like looked in the mirror and done you know we as as human beings we're introspective but if you're a a physician and you've taken lots of tests do a test on yourself see where you are what are your gaps do you want to close them how painful that i mean honestly when i started doing that and really through business school kind of looking at myself, my personality and my like normative behaviors, my stress responses, I became a better husband. I became a better dad, you know, it's like, why am I being a jerk? You know, I'm stressed out. Okay. And then it has all these unintended consequences. And, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I would have started down that journey, you know, 20 years ago, rather than five years ago.
2: Very cool. I love it. Well, Steve, if our listeners want to connect with you, you know, online, are you on yeah. um, social media? Yeah,
1: I think LinkedIn is great. I think, you know, check out our Instagram page. You know, we have Facebook, you know, through Dr. Knows Best, either one, you know, or you can find me on the Emory website, whatever, you know, depends on, you know, what they're coming for and what they want advice about. But, you know, I'm happy to at least tell you what not to do because I've learned a lot of that. But yeah, I think, you know, if you want to learn more about boogers or you want to talk about the doctor knows best, then then kind of come to us through the website. If you're more interested in translational research and writing and getting rejected over and over and over again, <laughs> to, you know, come at you. My lab has a, you know, I can give you a link to put in the notes for the lab website. So awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. Sad.
0: Well, thank you so much, Steve. It was really nice to connect with you today. We appreciate your time. For our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Continue to subscribe, hit like, uh, send us feedback. If
2: you want a new topic, different topic, speaker, come on the show. For sure. Subscribe, rate, and share. It helps us grow. It supports our efforts to bring you this content. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram we're on, and we're on Twitter at underscore backtable ent. Thanks for stopping sharing, by the show.
1: Sharing is caring, y'all. That's sharing right. <laughs> yeah. You
2: know it.
1: <laughs> there it is. Nice.
2: nice. <laughs> awesome. That's a wrap. <laughs> yeah.